From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast Hot Takes Edition after the Miami 52 Florida State 10 debacle that at least some of you listeners watched some of. I'm not sure how many people actually wanted to subject themselves to this uh, this much of a mess after the first couple drives, and uh, I don't blame anybody out there who decided that, eh, you know what, maybe it's a good night for a movie. Or maybe I should watch some competitive football or something like that. Nothing wrong with that decision at this point. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've actually recorded episodes in, at halftime in the past due to disgust. I, I know longtime listeners will remember that. Uh, I can't remember if I did it once or twice last year where it was like, well, this game's over and I can already diagnose it and there's really not much to, to deal with here because the coaches, the coaching staff is what they are and there's, there's, uh, there's not really much to evaluate. So let's just go ahead and get it done. I was tempted to do that here at 38-3 to at the half. Uh, this, game, this game was over after the – this game was over before the first quarter was over. And it was obvious that this game was over if you looked at the body language of the two teams – and that was as bad as Florida State has looked at any point that I can remember. And, you know, many of you who are older and can remember the real classic days, maybe, maybe, it, uh, maybe it goes back, you know, the pre-Bowden days, maybe they looked worse a few times. But this was as bad as Florida State's looked in my lifetime uh, that I can remember. And every bit as bad as the Louisville loss uh, in as any of Taggart's loss losses, uh, that first half, they, that was, that was something to watch. And, uh, that's not the Florida state that any of us are, are used to are used to watching, although it's starting to become the Florida state that we're used to watching. That said, I, I, as, as, as tempted as I was to record this before halftime was over, I did want to see how this team would respond in the second half under a different under a different staff, and how whether there were whether there would be some things that I could I could at least pull from in terms of young players playing later on, different things like that. Whether there would be uh, something to to pull from from the second half, I, I wanted to see that, and I do think that they came out better in the second half. Uh, they did score the one touchdown. They actually did show some life on on offense in the second half right home about, but going from 3.6 yards per play, or I'm sorry, 3.2 yards per play in the first half. They were doubled up by Miami in the first half in yards per play, by the way. Miami 6.4, which is uh, which is pretty decent. 3.2 is about as anemic as you're going to get. Uh, and Florida State managed 5.6 yards per play in the second half. Now, obviously, that's that's garbage time stuff, and and Miami in the in the fourth quarter pulled pulled some of their guys. But if you look at the uh, at the third quarter only, Florida State averaged seven point two yards per play in the third quarter to five point three for Miami. That actually was a was a pretty decent quarter. You could see that they actually came out and and played decent football. There looked like they sort of recovered themselves a little bit in terms of what they were trying to do offensively. Uh, went to some tight end screens and and things like that that uh, were able to hurt Miami and, and managed to get a score. And, and actually look like a competent and you know, reasonably well-coached team for just a little bit. And then you know, when you got to the fourth quarter, dipped down to 4.2 yards per play, but still better than what you saw in the first quarter. Uh, just, just not good enough. And when you look at that, at that defense, well, the defense was still a mess in the, in the second half. Uh, still gave up 
5.3 yards per play in the third quarter, 6.1 uh, through three quarters, but 5.3 in the third quarter, 5.9 in the, in the fourth quarter. But, I mean, most of the damage was done by then. Still not very good, though. I mean, Miami was just running the football pretty much at that point, and still no real, no real answers for Florida State defensively. And uh, that's, I mean, it was just a bat. You talk about it, an embarrassing performance on the defensive side. 7.7 yards per play given up in the, in the third quarter. Just, I mean, you're talking about insane production from what's frankly not that great of a Miami team. This Miami team's going to get exposed when they play better teams later this year. And that's, Florida State was not able to do it, but uh, a couple of teams are going to do that. And this Miami team is, is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, discover some of their limitations there. But, uh, but yeah, this was, this was a debacle. This was, this was not good. There's no sugarcoating this. Uh, I got a, I actually got a text message from uh, another former player uh, who's now a, a high school coach who I think put it well. This is Chad Wheeler. Uh, he said, look, the indicator of how close you are is how you compete with your rivals. Presuming a four-year progression, year one, blowout loss, year two, close loss, possible upset, year three, win, year four, convincing win. But we may be adding another, another category onto this, year zero, demoralizing blowout loss. And I think there's something to that, that this is, this is year zero, and, and this was worse than just a blowout loss. This was a blowout loss in which you had zero, almost zero chance. I mean, this felt like a foregone conclusion after about the second drive of the game, where it was like, oh man, this, these, these teams are just not, this is not going to be close. And you could see Florida State felt that way. Uh, you could see Miami felt that way. And from that point on, I mean, this, this got ugly. And, and I do think that that's a good way to think about this. I mean, generally speaking, that's how coaches think is you, you, you lose big, lose close, win, win close, win big. That's the progression, year one to year four. But with where things are at Florida State, we're at year zero. And this is going to take a good four years to fix. And it's going to be five years, I think, before this, this program could really be where a lot of people want it to be in terms of being uh, a nationally competitive type position. And the thing is, with how recruiting goes, with how uh, players buy in on the recruiting trail and how all this works, and you have to create a buzz as a new staff, that's hard to do in five years now. You kind of have to do it within the first three or two to get your players in so that by the time you get to years four and five, you've got the players that you need to, to win at that level in, in years four and five. And, and this, that's going to be a real tra- challenge for Norvell and his staff, uh, getting the players on campus that they're going to need to be able to, to get to where they want to be in year four, year five. Uh, and this year is not, certainly not going to help that, not just because of the product on the field. I mean, the product on the field is not, is not good, but because of how much the COVID-19 scenario has impacted their ability to build relationships and bring kids on campus and all of that. Now, that said, they did land the first legit blue-chip offensive tackle Florida State's landed in several years uh, in, in Orr, uh, which is a, a huge win. But still, that's, you know, that's one guy, and that really is the one blue-chip offensive, offensive uh, piece that, they're, that they have aside from uh, the wide receiver from... Where's he from? Louisiana. The kid from Louisiana. Aside from him, they, they really don't have. They're not on the on the radar for most of the elite prospects 
this cycle. I mean, really, this is a year zero, and they're going to need to really have a, a successful 2022 class. And it's really 2024, 2025 before you can, you're going to see that 2022 class really make make the, the waves that they're hoping to make. So the, the reality is this team, this staff is going to need to have a lot of success in the transfer portal because, frankly, this roster is a mess. And a big part of it is that the alleged leaders are, in many respects, the biggest problems. You can't win when your leaders don't perform on the field and then run their mouths while they're getting their butts kicked, which we saw multiple times in this game. I mean, Marvin Wilson makes a tackle nine yards up the field and then gets up and crows about it and, and talks, talks junk about that. Dude, you're a defensive tackle. You, you shouldn't be celebrating making a tackle nine yards upfield. Yeah, I get that it's a hustle play. Oh, and by the way, you happen to be disqualified for targeting because of that tackle. A couple plays later, you see Durden make one of the few plays he made all game and then gets up and postures and flexes and starts talking, talking smack. And it's like, you're down 28, man. You're down 28 points and you're, you're flexing and talking after making a play. Like, you haven't earned that. But what you have is a lot of players that basically it's the it's the it's the pretty good player on a really bad team in youth youth league where you ask him, well, you know, how how'd you did you guys win or lose? What well we lost, but I scored twenty three. I, I had a good game. Well, you got a lot of players that that's basically the way that they they seem to be approaching this, that it's really about I had I had a good game. I had a few tackles, or I did this. And frankly, they're not having good games. Fourth and one, and I'm, I'm going to pull this up. This is one of those plays that I'm going to focus on in, in the Patreon uh, breakdown this week. Fourth and one, and the entire defensive line gets blown off the ball. I mean, I, I flagged this last, last week about the Georgia Tech game, about getting stalemated not moving the line of scrimmage backward against Georgia Tech. Well, in this case, they were two yards down the field on fourth and one. And if that's going to be the, that's supposed to be your strength, that's a problem. But Marvin Wilson, Corey Durden, Tamorian Terry, those guys, and a host of others that are supposed to be your best players and supposed to be team leaders, they're, they're leading you right into the ditch, guys. At some point, you're got, you guys are going to have to actually – you guys are going to have to actually play because you're not looking like NFL, NFL talent right now. You've got to shut up and, and play. And you got guys that are calling their coaches out on social media. You're doing all this stuff, taking stuff, airing dirty laundry out among, among the public. And then you go and play like this? And go and play like that on the field? Yeah, let's see how, let's see how NFL teams grade that out. Let's see how they think, what they think about that. And it has nothing to do. I mean, I know some people are making this about, oh, you know, they're all about social justice and Black Lives Matter and, you know, putting all that attention on that is, is, is why they're playing poorly. No, it has nothing to do with that. But there is something to earning your platform, first of all. And second of all, the bigger thing is it's one thing to advocate for important political causes or for various social movements or all sorts of things. That, that, that's not a problem. But when you start taking inside team stuff and air and dirty laundry from your team, mm, 
That, that's, not, that's not activism. That's not, that's not how you make things better. That's not how you earn the trust of your teammates. That's not how you actually lead in an organization. And that's the stuff where you, you, I think you see a lot of, of these guys out on the field where they don't trust each other. They don't trust the team. They don't trust the staff. They're trying to get theirs. And that's been true for that. You go back to when Jimbo Fisher had to have those guys sign those uh, promissory notes saying, you know, I promise to, to play hard for my team and for my teammates and, and all of this and to do what I'm asked to do. Well, he had to have those guys do that because it had basically the rot had developed to such a degree that guys were basically concerned about their highlight tape, about where they would grade out for the NFL and all those other things. And they had stopped playing for us. They were playing for me. And you can only go so far playing for me. I mean, you you can at some positions, if, if the playing for me is doing the things that are going to make me look good by the team looking good, then it can work. But that's not where these things are. That's not basically how this is. You can see, and, and Herbie mentioned this on the broadcast, you can see when Terry's not getting the ball, he, his body language changes. He goes kind of into a shell. He starts to, he starts to get chippy with, with defensive backs and all sorts of things. And, he, and, and as Herbie observed, you could see Miami trying to kind of go after him and goad him a little bit. Because they, they recognize that when he when he's not getting the ball, he kind of kind of sulks a little bit, and and they and you lose him. You can't do that as a wide receiver. The fact is that as a wide receiver, you're not always going to get the football, and you're going to have to learn how to make your team better when you're not getting the football, and then make the most of it when you do. That's just the nature of the position. Same thing. As a defensive tackle, you know what? There are times where it's not your job to make the play, to peek in the backfield and do all these things to try to get a tackle or to try to do whatever. It's your job to blow your guy up so that you, so that the guy behind you can clean up the mess. You, you got to be unselfish to be a successful team. And I see a lot of selfish guys out there, a lot of them, and that's got to change. And and. The thing is, a lot of these guys are selfish as, because I think they're, they're imagining them, that they're actually better than they are. They'd be pretty good players if they're playing unselfish football, but they're not good enough to be those, the guys that are playing for their own stats. They're just not. So, yeah, looking, looking more detailed at the game uh, itself, I, in my preview, I was pretty clear. I didn't expect much from the offense in this game. I don't expect much from the offense this year. I mean, Cam Akers, as I said in the last Hot Takes podcast, Cam Akers is not walking through that door. They don't have, they don't have one of those guys. The best player you have in terms of a playmaker is, is, is Terry, and he's completely unreliable. And you're depending on the quarterback situation, a very unsettled and unreliable quarterback situation to get the football to him. So... That's not, that's not going to be ideal there. And, you know, I projected 13 points in this game out of Florida State, and that, that seems actually about right. Ten points, two trips inside the ten that came away with nothing, seems in the, in the right ballpark. So offensively, this is about what I expected. You look at, you know, the game totals, 4.5 yards per play, 
10 points, that's right in the zone of about what I what I would would have expected. I would expect probably closer to five yards per play. That's one thing I didn't guess on the last on on the preview, but I just said probably about five with about 13 points. That's what I expected. And they predictably had trouble blocking the edges. That's again, that's where the strength of Miami's defense is. But they didn't have as much success inside as they needed. And once the game get, got out of control because the defense couldn't get a stop, well, I mean, that, that didn't matter as much anyway. But, you know, in, um, in the pre- preview pod, I'd said Florida State, basically Miami's vulnerable on the interior, and that's where Florida State's offensive line was at least average. And the, the game on the offensive side would boil down to two questions. Can Florida State handle Miami's interior guys enough to gen- generate some running game and then make it a little easier to protect their edges as a result? And then second question is, can James Blackman actually come in and play the role of game manager and, and not turn the football over, not do things that are, that are going to hurt you? And then hopefully you can get some guys that can, that can make some plays on the outside you know, to steal a score or two. But that's, that's ba- those are basically the two questions. And the answer to both of those questions was no. Florida State didn't handle the interior guys quite well enough, though they did run it okay. I mean, when they, when they tried to run it, they, they generally ran it all right. I mean, you look at 4.2 yards per rush on 36 carries, 151 rushing yards. That's not, out, that's not awful. But by the time they were, they were running the football, it wasn't really, there wasn't really much to do there. There wasn't really much to benefit from there. So, yeah, that, uh, that, was, that was one thing. But the bigger problem was that the quarterback position, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't manage it. And... I did say that I felt that they'd offensively try to come into this game with a with a, a scheme that that tried to slow the game down and and use the run as a way to keep keep this game narrowed to fewer possessions so that it would turn into a defensive struggle. That's what they, I figured they tried to do, and they definitely did that. And they did that even more than I expected. I mean, if you talk about the offensive scheme, I thought they had a really good opening script. So far in two games, they've had a, a quality opening script in each game. And in this one, they had some really interesting wrinkles, putting Jordan Travis at, at the slot, at running back, at quarterback. And they gave themselves a chance to get one of their more dynamic guys the football in those cases. And also used Travis really as their starting quarterback in terms of what they were trying to do. They were trying to use him as the primary guy that was taking snaps and almost wildcatting it. Not... Wildcat, not the true Wildcat with the unbalanced line and all that, but treating him as a basically uh, a running back taking direct snaps who can kind of throw here and there. And, you know, it was a, th- this overall, once, especially even once you got past the script, this game was called and schemed like, as though the coaching staff has zero belief in their quarterbacks, which... To be totally honest, I think that's basically the situation. They schemed this game as a coaching staff that has zero belief in their quarterbacks, that does not believe that their quarterbacks can be asked to do much without hurting them. And so they went smoke mirrors and Jordan Travis. And frankly, Jordan Travis is the team's best running back right now, or at least was until he got hurt and then wasn't able to play the rest of the game, and then it was it was Blackman in there at quarterback, and that was pretty much that. They didn't really have much chance to do what they wanted to do with Travis once he got hurt, and he got hurt pretty early. So, I mean, that's what they tried to do. They didn't. You could tell they did not expect to be able to do much here, and they were trying to find some cheapies, some cheap ways to get running game the running game going and slow this game down. 
and overall, the, the scheme was sound. They, they did a pretty good job planning that. And I think, you know, if Jordan Travis doesn't get hurt and if the defense doesn't give up five touchdowns and a field goal in six first-half possessions, then, you know, you're talking about them coming in with a pretty good scheme offensively. On the flip side, I think the defense was a total embarrassment in this game. And I'm sorry to my listeners. This is an apology. I'm, I'm sorry. I got fooled again by in my in my preseason preview in terms of what to expect from this defense. Now, I'm not alone there. I think basically everybody who covers Florida State was fooled, at least in some respect, on, on this. All of us expected the defense to be something of a strength in 2020. I mean, and it's hard not to. I mean, you look out there and you see you see players that allegedly have talent. And, you know, I, I feel like I can recognize guys that have physical talent that, that – are, are pretty good. And you see players like Wilson, Durden, Cooper, Lovett, Janarius Robinson, Kando, who is out for this game, Homsen Nasiraldine, who has been out for the first couple weeks, Lars Woodby, Dent, Samuel Jr. You see all those players and you go, yeah, that guy would start at, you know, th- these various schools. Just physically, you'd expect that guy to start at all but maybe one one place or maybe at all the, all the other schools in the ACC. And then the guy next to him, you'd expect that. So you start looking at that and you go, yeah, personnel-wise, this should be a pretty good defense. They should at least be decent, I mean, even though they weren't good last year. Maybe, maybe, maybe some changes and some good coordination will, will help them. Just being coordinated on the same page, that'll, that'll get them there. Nope. And I'm sorry. that it, They're just – at some point, it's been three different coaching staffs and four different schemes, and at some point it's not – you can't just blame the coaches. And based on what I saw tonight, three players on the defense played close to the Florida State standard. That's Gaynor, Samuel Jr., and Travis J. And then, of course, Travis J. went down with a with an injury. Of course, of course, he did. And you can't really complain about Janarius either. I, I thought Janarius was okay. Not you know not too standard, but okay. And the rest, yikes. I mean, again, five touchdowns and a field goal and six first half possessions. That's not getting it done, let alone playing at Florida State level. And the defensive scheme, I mean, when they came out and what they came out in, I, just, I knew that this game would be, would be rough. I was, I was disappointed to see what they came out in because they came out in the tight front and ran the same basic scheme that they ran last year. And quite honestly, that was the first bad, really bad sign in this game. When they came out in that in that defensive front, in that basic defensive scheme, and I looked at that and went, oh, so they had two weeks to prepare, and this is what they did, huh? They came out with that. Basic, basically the same result as they got out of that last year. And I understand the logic of it. You have with Kando out, you have no ends. So go odd front, feature your defensive tackle talent, you know, put Wilson on, on one edge and you know Durden in there at that spot when Wilson's not on the field. Feature your defensive tackles and and hope that you can you can get something out of them and and uh and even the even the odds a little bit, even the numbers out with with doing some two gapping and some some uh run read stuff up front. But I look at last year, look at these guys, and look at last week and or two weeks ago, and you go, guys, that's probably just not going to work. 
and honestly, going tight front against Miami's personnel groups, preferred personnel groups, also not really, not really what I'd I'd want to see there. I, I just I, I don't I don't see that as a good idea. And what you're doing when you do that is you're depending on that front and your linebackers to dominate, and they're flat out soft. Florida State's defensive defensive tackles and defensive line are soft and selfish and the backers aren't very good and you need you need you need some guys that can play backer if you're going to play tight front. You need some quality backers in addition to some guys that can handle some business up front. And they got neither. And then you add that you're soft to that. I I just I, I think the better move as I said Last week, the better move is to move your best pass rusher, arguably your best defensive player at this point, to end, and then at least you've shored up that position a little bit, and you've given yourself a chance to to get some havoc from that position. Put Amari Gaynor at the Fox and roll with that. That's what they should be doing. I've been saying that since the preseason. And I, I think Lars Woodby also is a bit of a liability at the boundary safety. Just don't think he runs well enough and is quick quick enough, especially after the injury. I mean, I don't know that he was before the injury to play that spot at that weight and at that size. Move him down to the stud and see if you if you can be a little bit better at the at at, at overall at the uh, in terms of getting your best eleven on the field more often. And. Then you combine all this with playing soft coverage, seven yards off the ball, eight yards off the ball with your with your corners. Third and three, you got guys playing, you know, seven, eight, eight, eight yard cushions. I don't, I don't understand that, especially against this quarterback. If you're going to give King a bunch of five, six yard throws, he does make those throws. He will make those throws, and he'll make them consistently. You've got to force King to make some tougher throws downfield, and he hit on you know he hit on the, a couple deep deep throws, but make him make him throw some of the tougher downfield throws. That's where he struggled. Don't give it, don't make it easy on him. The same thing with with uh, with Sims earlier in the year. All of a sudden, you've got those guys playing seven on seven there because you're not getting any pressure out of the tight front. You're not getting any pressure out of out of what you're doing. And then you're going to play with, with those decent-sized cushions, and you're going to ask those guys to execute down the field, throwing six, seven-yard, eight-yard routes. They're going to be able to make that throw because they're playing seven-on-seven. Seven. It's playing catch. And then they can just dink and dunk you down the field. Disrupt them. You've got to, you've got to start playing a little bit higher pressure in terms of coverage. I mean, partly because that's just Florida State's DNA. Let those guys do what they came to Florida State to do in that regard. Play a little bit more press. Get in guys' faces. Challenge them. Challenge Miami to beat you one-on-one. And yeah, they, they, they got a couple wins one-on-one. They're gonna. But don't let them just drive down the field with some dink and dunk with a quarterback where that's really his strength. He can run the football and then he can dink and dunk and periodically make a, make a downfield, you know, Hail Mary type throw. And you gave him that. I just think it was a poor a poor game plan, poor scheme overall coming into this game against Miami. But ultimately, in my view, the rot in this program runs a lot deeper than, than scheme. And it's going to take a while to root it out. 
And it's going to start with holding guys accountable for their level of play and how much they're running their mouths. And this is where I come back to having watched the second half. There were a few encouraging things that did happen in the second half. Most of all, the youngsters, some of the youngsters late, looked like they might be players. I thought Poitier and and, uh, Williamson at receiver looked like they were actually going to be pretty good players. Actually caught the football, which Warren Thompson has, uh, you know, he seems to have the he seems to have a special advantage in these times of pandemic that he can't catch a cold. Well, at some point, certain point, and this is you know, Mike Leach says this all the time: if you can't catch, you can't play receiver. And that seems I know that seems real simple, but <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's you know pretty obvious. And Thompson has struggled to catch the football, so you got to put people out there that are going to catch it, catch the football. Those guys caught it. Those guys actually did something with it once they caught it. Starting to show signs. Now, had some lineup issues, and you know, it's clear those guys are still swimming in terms of learning all the stuff that you have to learn. But at a certain point, you start to start to hold some guys accountable for not making plays, and you start to think about making making those giving those some of those young guys some more opportunities. I thought Robert Scott looked very promising at uh at right tackle, very promising, actually. In, in many respects, he already looks physically better than Love Taylor. Not, just not quite as strong as he needs to be. You can see that physically he's, he's, still, he's still a puppy. But the talent, he's actually got the talent to play, and he's got the talent to play tackle. Florida State hasn't had real tackles on the roster in quite a long time. And, and that guy actually looks like he's a, a college tackle. Looked promising. Made some made some promising blocks, both in pa- in pass blocking and in and in, uh, in run blocking. Managed to get to the second level and move his feet and do all those things. Uh, in in some combo blocking, looked looked encouraging there. And I thought Schrader looked okay at left tackle. Certainly better than they've had. I didn't think he looked as good as, as Scott. Uh, I I think he I don't think he moved quite as well, but certainly better than they've had. And and. Again, at at that length, looked a little bit more like a tackle. So give him credit there. And if nothing else, Schrader, I think, should be a good guard. And I thought Toafili was better in this game. Again, should, continued to show me that he. I think he's going to be better than I thought he'd be. But the other flip side of that is that when you look at the young talent on defense, the, talent, the defense is going to have to deal with the talent deficit for a while. I mean, I did think 90 and... 99 played lower and harder than the veterans at defensive tackle, so that's a plus. But let's be honest, Griffiths is just a guy at Florida State. Quayshawn Fuller, the, the next best guy at the edge, and he's just a guy at Florida State. These are not difference makers, and they badly need some edge guys that can come in and play. And this is going to be a transfer portal necessity. I mean, they're going to have to get some guys in soon. That, that can actually rush the passer, that can play edge in the system. There's no question. And that can play edge in any system. And that's, that's, a, that's a concern. And then looking forward, you know, Chubba Purdy is a guy that later in the season I think may really be able to help you because as you're, you're looking at a guy that, that is as good, as, as good an athlete basically as Travis, an explosive runner who can also throw. And I'm curious to see what they do with Travis once the once the young quarterbacks are actually 
a little bit more ready to to be put out there. I mean, I think there's already showing that they may use Travis more as a slash guy, put him at the three back, use him in the backfield, use him at slot receiver, use him in some trick plays, do some things with him that get him the football because of his explosiveness. And they don't have a whole lot of guys that are that are better athletes than, than him with the, with his hands on the ball. So be interesting to see what they do there. But I think later in the season, once Purdy is, is, is ready to actually play, and this is the thing, you can't play those guys before they're ready. But once he's actually ready to play, it'll be interesting to see how much of a difference that may that, that sort of thing may make for uh, for this offense. But, yeah, they're, they're going to have to start really planning for and building for the future in terms of, of what they do. Not, it's not a full-on youth movement. You can't just play guys who haven't earned it. But basically, you have to start saying, look, if if the older guys aren't doing their job, we're going to give you young guys a chance. And if you if you do your job when you're in there, then you're going to win that job. And this is the only way that you can hold guys accountable. You you have to hold guys accountable with play t- with playing time. And you know, to me, you use the Jacksonville State game to see which young guys are are getting close to ready to compete to take some of those older guys' reps. Give the young quarterbacks some drives, and if Purdy's healthy enough, make sure he gets some. Find some receivers who are reliable and can block and catch. And Pokey and the young guys did show some reliability in this game, so maybe those are the guys you roll with. But to me, you start to rebuild the culture by using playing time as the accountability tool. You don't do what we ask. You don't play to the standard. You stand next to me. The problem here is that there just aren't many wins left on the schedule. I mean, this is not a great Miami team. I don't think this Miami team is one of the better teams on the, on the Florida State schedule. I mean, I think there's at least three, maybe four teams on the schedule left that are better than this Miami team. So that's, that's a problem. I mean, you just, got, you just got beat by 42 by a team that probably playing three, four teams that are better than that team. That's not encouraging. But if you're Norvell and you're, you're the coaching staff, you're, you're not wanting to look at results right now. You're wanting to establish a sense of accountability and start to figure out who, who you actually can trust moving forward and which guys ultimately uh, need to be replaced and, and who, what you need to focus on in the transfer portal and moving forward how you can, how you can rebuild and, and flip this roster to get to where you need to be culturally and, and all sorts of other ways. I do think, though, that they're going to need to really examine what they're doing also on the defensive side in terms of, in terms of scheme and in terms of where personnel's lined up. They're going to have to find a way to do some, do some things differently. Well, this has been a little longer than normal for a Hot Takes podcast, but a lot of things to work through. As always, this podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, and Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida. And as always, I've, I want to thank my Patreon supporters. It's a Hot Takes podcast, so I'm not going to go through and list everybody on this one. But uh, as always, thanks for that. I'll do my best to get some stuff up to evaluate uh, some things that are at least worth looking at in this game. Do that early in the week. Until then... This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening.